Good morning. My name is Ethan Blankenship, and this morning we'll be reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for heaven, laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now and begin a new series in a new book, would I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. May you give us hearts that are fertile soil in which the seed of your word can fall. May it go deep and bear much fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love trees. I'm just going to own it. I love trees. I think I've always had a love for trees, but that love didn't really kick into high gear until I moved my family to the north of England to plant a church in the Vale of York. There I encountered trees like I had never seen before. Partially because I now saw them in a landscape that felt completely foreign to me. You you probably already know this, but we all tend to take for granted our surroundings in the places we grew up, in the places we were born. Those trees, they've just always been there. That winding creek, that bridge has always been a part of the background. That building has always been there looking pretty much just like it always has. We take it for granted. But when you move to another place, one that's very different from where you grew up, then you begin to really notice everything. You notice everything because you're seeing the world through foreign eyes now. The locals dismiss that castle on the hill or those standing stones in the field with a, oh, I've never paid them much attention. They've always just been there. They're nothing special. But to you, who didn't grow up with castles all around you or ancient ruins in the woods, they're all a wonder to behold. You haven't seen things like this before. The same was true for trees with me. I I don't think North Yorkshire had a greater variety of trees than we do here in Alabama, but the trees I saw... I was seeing in a different setting, and therefore I was seeing them in a different light. I was seeing trees that some Cistercian monk 
had planted 600 years beforehand. In England, I would often take our family to visit historical houses that were all around us. And there we would see gardens with trees that were planned out with care and planted by people who died many, many, many generations ago. And with no tornadoes or hurricanes to blow them down, trees would grow massive as the centuries would go by. And I think in the six and a half years we lived in Europe, I can count on one hand the number of times I saw lightning strike one on one hand in Alabama. I think that's like an every week occurrence, seeing lightning. So tall trees have it rough here, but in Europe, trees have it pretty good. They got it pretty easy. They're planted with care. They're tended by generation after generation. Their roots go down deep. And in this sense, trees are like the church. As we begin the book of Colossians this morning, we're going to examine the true roots of the church. I don't often give titles to sermons, but I'll make an exception today. Today we're looking at the true roots of the church in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And here is the central image that we're going to keep coming back to. The image of a tree nourished by its roots. I think I take this for granted. I can take it for granted, I think, that we all know why a tree needs roots, right? You know this. Without roots, trees don't grow. Without roots, trees don't bear fruit. Without roots, any passing wind will knock a tree over. Without roots, a tree has no nourishment. It withers and dies. And the same is true for the church. The church also has roots, without which she will not grow, without which she will not bear fruit. Without these roots, the church will be knocked over by the wind of false beliefs, Christ-denying practice. Without these roots, the church will wither and even die. Churches can die. They do die. You know that, right? Individual churches can become rootless and wither. To use Jesus' language, a church can have her lampstand taken away. A church can lose her first love. A church can be blown over by the, and by the cultural winds of her day. A church can wither and die. And what can happen to an individual church can happen to individual Christians as well. Churches, after all, are made up of individuals. Individuals who also need to be rooted. Without roots, churches don't grow, and we don't grow. We get blown over by the wind that hits us. The wind that hits us in our first college psychology class or astronomy course. Now, I'm picking on those two because we have an astrophysicist here somewhere, and we've got psychology PhDs as well. But they would be the first to tell you. Lucas, Justin, Danny would be the first to tell you that you have to go into the classroom rooted in something. Because a big part of higher education, students, 
is testing out the strength of the roots and refining them, making them stronger to see what they will hold up against. And you'll see it pretty quickly, either in yourself or in others around you, that without roots, we wither spiritually. You've probably felt this reality already. If you are not rooted in a believing community, one that holds to the supremacy of Christ in all things, then we are in the dangerous place of being like a tree without roots. The next passing wind, the next hardship could blow us over. Why? Because without the proper nourishment, we all wither. Each of us, we wither. One of the most important things I tell college students just starting out is find and get rooted in a church quickly. Find a church, get rooted, plant your life there quickly. Doing that one thing will make a world of difference in your freshman year. Just that one thing. Uprooted and divorced from Christian community, our faith wavers and it withers. It ought to waver and wither because we are neglecting what Jesus created to nourish us. It's like a tree saying to the soil and water and minerals, I don't need you anymore. That's what we're doing when we say no to the church and divorce our life from it. Jesus is kind when he lets us feel dry and lets us get blown over so that we might learn just how much we need to be rooted in his church. Okay, if Jesus designed us to be rooted in his church, what is the church meant to be rooted in? What's the church meant to be rooted in? If churches can also become rootless and wither, how are we to discern if this is the place we are to plant our lives? Here, the Apostle Paul really helps us. The book of Colossians tells us what we are to look for. What are the true roots of the church that you, where you are meant to plant your life? What are they? This may be the first Sunday you're here at ABC. Maybe you're a freshman visiting for the first time. This may be the only Sunday you are here at ABC. And this may be the only sermon you ever hear me preach. And that would be fine. If you go from here and plant yourself in a church that better reflects the picture we have here in Colossians chapter 1. No church is going to be the perfect reflection. We are not perfect. We're not the perfect reflection. But as a church, we want to grow, don't we? We want to grow. And we welcome all those who want to grow with us. We are often failing, but we recognize that we either fail together and grow together, or we don't grow much at all apart. So, if this is the only Sunday you're ever here, that's okay. If you go from here and root yourself in a church family seeking to live out these things. Okay, you say, what things? What things are we to be looking for? What are the true roots of the church? We're going to see four of them this morning. Uh, let's see them together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The first is this. 
We're going to see faithfulness rooted in faith. Faithfulness rooted in faith. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Faithfulness, this is a faithful church full of faithful people. What's that rooted in? It's rooted in a faith a faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this may seem rather obvious. Faithfulness is rooted in faith. The word faith is literally the root word of faithfulness. Faithfulness is the state of being faithful. That seems obvious. And faithful is the state of being full of faith, of keeping faith. This connection should be obvious to us. Faithfulness is rooted in faith. The connection should be obvious to us, But like the hills and trees we grew up with, it could be a truth we take for granted and don't think about like we should. Any non-native speaker viewing English with foreign eyes would spot this connection right away. There, there's the root word, faith in faithful. Faith in faithfulness. And there's a good chance if you're a native English speaker that you've never thought about this connection expressed in modern English and in first century Greek as well. What is it? What's the connection between a life described as being faithful and what a person believes, their faith? How is faithfulness rooted in faith? Well, let's think about it. If we describe someone as faithful, we usually mean that they are true to their word. They're dependable. They'll stand by you even when things get tough. They are faithful. Gimli, son of Gloin, says, Faithless is he who says farewell when the road darkens. Right? We know that's true. But what is the faithless person uh, say? Why are they saying farewell? What is the faithless person failing to believe when they say farewell? A faithless person fails to believe this, that sticking to his word will be worth it in the end. A faithless woman fails to believe that sticking to her word or to her friend is worth the trouble it will cause her. Faithlessness believes that there is a better offer, a better offer out there. Brutus stabs Caesar in the back because he believes there is a better way to govern Rome. Judas betrays Jesus because in the moment, the silver offered to him seems better than what Jesus is offering. A husband is faithless in his marriage because he believes in that moment that there is a better, more exciting offer before him in having an affair. Faithlessness believes that there is a better offer. If that's so, what does faithfulness believe? What kind of faith is faithfulness rooted in? It's the opposite belief. Faithfulness believes that holding tight and keeping faith is what's best. Faithfulness believes that I already have what is best. 
The faithful husband believes I already have what is best for me in my wife. I'm not entertaining other offers. The faithful friend believes being there for his friend in need is what's best, even if it costs her. The same is true with the faithful Christian. The faithful Christian believes that in Christ, he already has what is best. I'm not hedging my bets. I'm not entertaining other offers for my heart's allegiance. If I were a gambler, I'm putting all my chips in on Christ. I'm not hedging my bets at all. It all rides on him. Because I believe that faithfulness to Christ is always worth it. It's always what's best, even if it costs me. Even if it costs me my friend's respect, if it costs me my promotion at work, if it costs me my place at the table or my invitation to the party, it is always worth it. Faithfulness believes Jesus is worth it. Faithfulness believes I already have what is best in Jesus. I'm not going to abandon the rock of Christ for the shifting sands of what is fashionable today in my culture. The root of faithfulness goes down deep into faith, like roots going down into life-giving soil. That's true for us individually, but it's also true for us collectively as a church. A church's collective faithfulness is rooted in a collective faith that we have found a king worth following, that we have found a cause worth living for, that we found a cause worth dying for. We're not hedging our bets. We're not considering better offers. We have found a Lord who is worth keeping. His word is worth keeping. Through, though the whole world think it's foolishness, his word holds true. We will hold true to him. We found a king whose reign is wise and good. Though the whole world thinks it's backwards and regressive, we know the truth. Faithless is he who says farewell when the road darkens. When others say farewell to Jesus, faith says, where else would we go? You alone have words of eternal life. Faithfulness has roots that go down deep in this belief. We found what is best, a Savior who alone speaks words of life into a dying world. We found him, but we've also discovered this. We all know that it's very possible to be like Peter saying, I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to face death with you, Jesus. And then, before the day's done, live in a way that denies that we ever knew him. We all know that to be true. We've all lived out that dynamic Peter lived out as well. We know the same weakness is in us. But, as Peter found, there is a stronger forgiveness and faithfulness in Jesus. Amen. There's great weakness in us, but greater faithfulness in him. We, when we prove ourselves faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God's very character 
is faithfulness. Our faithfulness is rooted in a faith that believes in his faithfulness above all. So, like tree roots going down deep, look for a church where their faithfulness is rooted in faith. ABC, let's be that church. Let's excel still more in being a church who is faithful because we are deeply rooted in faith. There's a second root to look at, and that's in verses 4 through 5, and it's this. Love rooted in hope. Love rooted in hope and in the Spirit. Verse 8. Look at verses 4 and 5. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints... Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And we could skip down to verse 8. He informed us of your love in the spirit. There, love is rooted in something. It's rooted in hope. It's rooted in the spirit. Again, I'm not saying anything new. Anything that should surprise you. This should be obvious. The church should be rooted in love. The church should be known for its love. Jesus said, by this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The church is to be known for love. Why? Because our love for others is rooted and nourished by Jesus' love for us. Just like roots nourish a tree and cause it to produce fruits, the roots of the church go down into a Savior who is full of love for us. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. As I have loved you, go, love others. Our love for one another is rooted in the great love we believe that Jesus has for us. The deeper our roots go down into believing that Jesus loves me, this I know. The deeper our roots go down in believing in Jesus' love for us, despite all of our failing, all of our sin, the more we are going to be nourished and enabled to love others, despite all their failings and sin against us. So, the church's love for others is to be rooted in Jesus' love for us. And it's to be rooted in the hope found in verse 5. You love all the saints. Why is this? Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. What is this hope in heaven that nourishes our love for others like a root nourishes a tree? Truth be told, in many ways, this is the opposite of the world's love. At least it contrasts sharply with a love rooted in what essentially is ultimate despair, more despair than hope. The person who believes that this life is all there is does genuinely, can genuinely love other people, love things and love others, but it's a love that has a view that he will very soon lose that thing that he loves. Everyone and everything I love will all too soon be lost to me. They will die. My toys will break. The good days will fade. So I cling to them 
with an increasingly desperate and despairing grip. I will lose all that I love, and one day no one will remember that I or any of the things I love ever existed. Contrast that love, a love careening toward despair, with this love, this love that is rooted in hope. Paul says that the church is filled with love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. For the church, our love isn't careening toward oblivion. It's moving ever upward and onwards, ever higher and more heavenly, ever further up and further in. The people sitting around you today are your church family. You love them now. Genuinely, you love them. But the love you have today is only a small fraction of what it shall be. You love that awkward and unlovely person sitting next to you. Go ahead and nudge them and say, the pastor's talking about you. Yes, you love that person. You love that weird person next to you. But you have the hope that your love will not end, but grow on like an eternal evergreen tree growing and growing. You have the hope that one day they'll be a lot less weird, but they'll also be a lot more full, fully themselves, unencumbered by sin in the world to come. You believe, or you should believe, that the simplest believer sitting next to you right now will one day be a glorious being, full of beauty, wisdom, goodness, and light. So much so that if you were to see them now as they shall be, you would be tempted to fall on your face in adoration, in worship. Don't you think that that hope of heaven should in some way nourish the love you have for others now? It should. It's kind of like that scene from Charlie Brown's Christmas where Frida can no longer work with Pigpen because of how dirty and dusty he is. You remember this? Charlie Brown says, don't think of it as dust. Think of it maybe as the soil of some great past civilization. Maybe the soil of ancient Babylon. It staggers the imagination. He may be carrying soil that was trod upon by Solomon or even Nebuchadnezzar. And Pigpen says, sort of makes you want to treat me with more respect, doesn't it? Right? A hope of heaven should make you treat others, even the Pigpens of the church, with more respect, with more love. Because, look, let's face it, what has Jesus done? Jesus has made us a family. He's made us a family forever. You've got problems with a sister in this family? It'd be good for you to work it out now. You got a beef with a brother? It'd be good for you to work it out right now because they're going to be part of the family forever. You're going to have to love and be in fellowship with one another for a long, long, long time. You're going to have to love and embrace one another one day. Might as well let it begin now. No. Jesus actually would command and call you to let it begin now. Let your love for one another be rooted in a hope of heaven, a hope that's bigger 
than all the worldly pettiness and offenses. Let's love one another with a love that is rooted in hope and a love that is rooted in the Holy Spirit. You see that verse 8. Your love, what's it rooted in? Your love in the Spirit. You might say to me, Pastor KJ, I get the logic of why I should love, but the power to love doesn't always seem to come with the logic. Where is the power? Where do I get the power to love? Colossians 1, verse 8, gives us the answer. The power to love, like Christ's love, comes from the Spirit. Christ's Spirit enabling us, empowering us. You can try to follow Jesus, to love like He loves, to serve like He serves. Without the Spirit, though, it's like a tree trying to bear fruit without having any roots. It can't be done. You can't do it. Without the Spirit, without the life of God at work in the soul of man, it is like a circuit between the head and the heart has been disconnected. There's no power. There's no power to respond. It's like a tree that's been severed from its life-giving roots. The fuel to produce fruit isn't getting to the branches. Our love has to be rooted in our hope and it has to be rooted in God's Spirit. God's Spirit at work in us. These are the roots of the true church in every place and in every point in history. Love rooted in hope and in the Spirit. There's a third root to look for in verses 5 and 6, and it's this. Faithfulness, sorry, fruitfulness rooted in the gospel. Fruitfulness rooted in the gospel. Look at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. What is the true root of fruitfulness in the church? Scattered over all the world, according to Paul, it isn't strategies. It isn't cleverness. It isn't gimmicks. It's the gospel. It's the word of truth. The simple good news about Jesus and what he has done. Our fruitfulness for Jesus is rooted in the story of his fruitfulness for us, what he's done for us. The church doesn't have any other message but the gospel. The church won't be fruitful preaching any other good news. The army can't go forward under any other banner than this, the gospel. We can be tempted to. The church can be tempted to look to other things, to grow, and to make ourselves appear fruitful. You can be tempted to look elsewhere. You can be tempted to look to self-help programs or online gurus or hunt for new revelations somewhere, or higher principles to live by. But then, the Bible would ask you a question. The Bible would ask, are you so foolish, having begun by hearing and believing the gospel, do you really believe you're going to grow in another way? 
Having begun by the gospel, do you really think you're now going to be perfected through your rule keeping or step following or some secret key to better living? No. You began the Christian life through hearing and believing the gospel. Paul says, the way you began is the way you're going to grow. Real fruitfulness for the church and for the individual Christian is always going to be rooted in the gospel of Christ. For us to look elsewhere would be like a tree saying, now that I've grown out of the dirt, I have no need of my roots anymore. I have no need of them. Don't be hasty, tree, right? Don't be hasty. What nourished you in the beginning is what will nourish you till the end. Our fruitfulness is fed by the gospel, like a tree is fed by its roots. Or if you'd rather, it's like a car propelled by its engine. This is the engine for us, church, because if we're trying to do good and be fruitful, divorced from the gospel, where does the credit go? All praise goes to me. All praise, all glory goes to us. And that's not a position you want to be in. That's not a church you want to be part of, one that's out for its own glory. But if instead we are trying to do good and be fruitful, and the gospel of Jesus is the driving force, the propelling motivation of our actions, then who gets the glory? Jesus. Jesus is the engine propelling the car. He is the root that is causing the fruit to grow. All credit rightfully goes to him. And why is that so important? It's massively important because the only fruitfulness that will touch eternity is fruitfulness connected to Jesus. Fruitfulness that has been rooted in his gospel. Fruit grown for his glory is the only thing that will last. That's the third point. Let's quickly see the fourth and final one, which is found in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, Which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. The last root of the church that we'll examine this morning is this. Knowledge rooted in grace. Knowledge rooted in grace. Paul says that real churches not only hear the gospel, but they understand the grace of God in truth. They have a knowledge rooted in grace. Now, it's important to see this, that these two things, knowledge and grace, are linked and tied together because the modern world loves to separate them out and cut them off from one another. This has been happening for a long time. G.K. Chesterton observed this happening over 100 years ago. He said this. He said, the modern world is full of old Christian values gone mad. The virtues have gone mad because they have been isolated from each other and are wandering off alone. Thus, some scientists care for truth, but their truth is pitiless. Thus, some humanitarians only care for pity, but their pity, I'm sorry to say, is often untruthful. 
The world tends to tear apart truth and knowledge. Truth and knowledge from grace and compassion. So that we have graceless truth over here pitted against truthless grace on the other side. In fairness, it can often feel like the more you know, the more knowledge you collect, the more understanding you gain, the more puffed up you become, the more proud, the more graceless you become. That's, that's pretty natural. But this isn't the way it is to be in the church. In Christianity, the more you know about God, the less puffed up you become. The more you understand, the more you see your need to be humbled. Like Job, the more God reveals himself to you, the more you are urged to put your hand over your mouth and say, I have declared things which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. The more you realize how much you are a debtor to grace. And the more you realize the debt you have to God's grace, the more gracious you are with others in return. How could I not be gracious towards others in light of God's great grace toward me, revealed in the Bible? The more I come to know the grace of God in truth, the more I become an instrument of that grace toward others. The world tends to separate these two things out, and the church can follow the pattern of the world with knowledge-producing pride and grace looking more like willful ignoring of the truth. But it will go ill for us if we go that way. It'll go ill for us if we do. It'll be like severing a tree from its roots, severing our knowledge from God's grace. So if this is the one and only time for you at ABC, what are you to do? I'd say to you, go and look for a church where the knowledge of God leads people to humbly bask in God's grace. And I'd say to ABC, let's be that church. Let's be that church. Let's refuse to divorce these things from each other. Let's be full of grace and truth because that's exactly what we see in Jesus. If you haven't guessed it already, my tree image is pretty much entirely plagiarized from Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, I am the true vine. I am the true root of the church. Our Lord says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You, disconnected from Jesus, the true vine, can do nothing. Nothing of any lasting, eternal significance. The church, severed from Jesus, the true root, is like a tree that can do nothing. Nothing but wither and die. My plea to you today is this. Don't wither. Don't die. You know where to find the root. You know where to find life. Church, 
Christian, don't wither alone and disconnected. Instead, be like a tree that abides, letting your roots go down deep in the soil of Christ and in his joyful supremacy over all things. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would make every person here like a tree planted by streams of water, regularly refreshed by your word. May our roots go down deep into Christ. May our lives bear fruit. May our leaves not wither. And whatever our soul does, may you cause us to grow and prosper because we are rooted into the source of life. Lord, may someone here who has, to this point, been disconnected from from Christ, may you draw them to yourself. May those who have been divorced and disconnected from the family, from the church, may you open their eyes this morning to see their need to root their lives in the place you've designed to nourish them, the family you have given to grow them. Lord, may we grow together. And may we grow up into maturity, into the image of the Son. Uh, Make us this kind of church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.